Club.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And on this week's MCU.html, we're going to be talking the man himself, Captain America. Yeah. So, wow, this is five movies in, Kevo. Yeah, we're really plowing right through. It's crazy, because I do feel like we're plowing right through, and that's kind of the magic of keeping this weekly. This project is such a big idea when we're talking about 22 movies. I feel like it's really easy to not realize how quickly you can fall behind on a weekly project. What's funny, though, is that we're already really far in, but we're also barely in it all. We're only about a less than a quarter of the way through all the films. But at the time... Watching these live, being at the fifth film of the first phase, felt like something unimaginable at times. Oh, it really did, and we still hadn't yet reached the Avengers, which was going to be the culmination, and we had no idea at the time how many more films there were still yet going to be after. I have so many wonderful memories of seeing Marvel movies with you because they started when we started dating and it was just such a great time, just not for these movies, but for us too. And I think we've only gotten better. I wish I could say the same of the films, but I have a very specific memory of seeing Captain America at a midnight showing in theaters and ultimately being surprised that there were even 20 of us there. (laughs) And now I would give anything to be able to see one of these movies at midnight with only 200 (laughs) people in the theater yeah it's definitely come a very long way in terms of popularity notoriety visibility and industry and in so many ways it kind of felt like this was a movie that would never come out captain america was one of the first superheroes in what ultimately became the marvel vault at the time marvel was known as timely comics so it wasn't quite marvel comics yet But Captain America was there from the beginning, along with the original Human Torch and Namor the Submariner. They were a part of a team during World War II known as the Invaders. The Invaders were kind of like a precursor to the Avengers, but really focused on the fighting Nazis bit. Interesting name for a team like that, though, the Invaders. I think it's because they invaded Europe to stop the Nazis. I honestly have not given this era of Captain America enough of a read. I like to call myself a big Cap fan because he has meant so much to me personally. Captain America represents so many of the ideals I want to be as a person. He protects people. He is strong without being too arrogant, and that is occasionally a problem. Balancing confidence with arrogance, and that's something that somehow Captain America does so flawlessly. He manages to bring about this sense of comfort and safety. You know that he can take care of it, but he never makes you feel like you can't. It's humility and humbleness that he has. I agree. Now, where are we in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Let's see. We've had two Iron Mans, a Hulk, and Thor. So I kind of feel like we have been in this like super male-heavy world where... Even when there has been a strong woman, she has ultimately not been one of the fighters. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. There was Black Widow, but as we've discussed, Black Widow didn't really have her own personality for much of Iron Man 2, nor did she fight for a lot of it. So we've seen a woman kick ass, but only it's only felt like a brief glimpse, really. And while there was Lady Sith, Lady Sith kind of blended into the boys' club of the Warriors 3. I would definitely agree with that. No less important than any of them, but no more important either, really. 
And that can be okay. We don't say that we want to see equal representation so that women take all of the roles from men. But it would be nice to see a woman stand out in one of these films. And I do feel like while we are going to discuss the nearly endless list of problematic moments, none of them are on the part of the performance of Peggy Carter. And the spirit of the character is tremendous, powerful, and well thought. This character absolutely earned 26 episodes of television to herself. This performance and the character, they're really fantastic. And that actually brings us to a great point. Thank you so much for that segue. I do want to mention that while there will be Marvel television shows in the very near future in terms of our chronology, we will not be delving into them. No, not especially, not particularly interested at this moment. We will be discussing the Marvel one-shots as well as a number of web series, but the TV shows quickly become too large in scope to properly discuss in the amount of time we have in a weekly podcast. And frankly, the amount of connectivity between the Marvel television programs and the Marvel Cinematic Universe that we see in theaters is tenuous at best. It seems like the producers from the films have no idea what's going on on television and don't especially care to. So the importance of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., of Marvel Netflix, it's really questionable, whereas we know... There are Marvel one-shots and there are web series with direct involvement from the Marvel Cinematic Universe that we see in theaters. And that's really what we are more looking to focus on with this podcast. And in many ways, it's hard to blame them. Frequently, film projects and TV series are ruled by a governing body of executives, each from their own industry, trying to make the best they can for their company. The toy executives want the best, flashiest, most amazing toys. The movie executive wants the most lucrative box office they can get. Meanwhile, whoever is in charge of Happy Meal tie-ins has to figure out how to make this look like a small fry. It can't be easy. Yeah, and people definitely enjoy Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm not knocking it as a product. It definitely accomplishes its goal. It has an audience. People love it. I just wish that I could enjoy it a little bit more. I wish that it was connected a little bit better. But... You know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe isn't necessarily going anywhere. Who knows what the next branch will give us? Maybe we'll see more of that in the future. And what's sort of interesting is that is where Marvel Plus does seem to be heading, with a merger of TV and movie as one single idea working together. True. I also feel one of the things that held back the Marvel TV universe was the inability to distinguish who belonged in TV and who belonged in movies. You never want to shortchange either medium, but films are these much shorter filming processes, and it's easier to make a movie than commit to a season of television in so many ways. True, and you only have such a deep well of villains to draw from. How do you decide which go into theaters and which go on to television? It's hard. Because as a longtime comic book fanboy, I wish we had a gender neutral, like fanics or something. I wish fanatic. Fanatic. Sure, I love it. That's an existing word that doesn't need to be created. As a longtime comic fanatic, I have so many villains I would be thrilled to see, but I understand that that's not the experience of the average person, considering... The sales of comics, if we go by the reported sales figures, which does bring me to another point I can't wait to make in a moment, Mm. but if we go by the sales figures on comics, the movies are seen by hundreds of times the people that comics are read by. So it's important that we understand that while the 
comics inspired the films, and they hope to bring along the fans of the comics. These are not being designed for the incredibly small comic market. They're being designed for the incredibly large film market. Also, on the subject of many people enjoy S.H.I.E.L.D., I was recently reading an article where they talked about how S.H.I.E.L.D. is actually one of the most successful shows in the world, all optics and metrics aside. Whether or not it's actually being watched by as many people as the Nielsen's report or not, it is one of the shows that generates the most online discussion immediately following the episodes, during the episodes, and long-term revisiting as a project. I don't know. I didn't know that many people were super into S.H.I.E.L.D., and frequently I feel like when I talk about it, a lot of people tell me they dropped off a number of years ago, but there's information that supports that it's still a huge show. And I'm really happy for it. I'm really happy for uh, Phil Coulson, and you know I love me some Ming-Na. Yeah, Ming-Na is a gift and a treasure and amazing. I feel like we might have gone on a tangent here. That's a really good point. To bring us back to television, we're not going to be covering the Marvel Netflix television or Marvel ABC television properties, and instead we're going to be focusing just on the movies like we did for the last three minutes. Yeah. So, Kevo, I kind of feel like there's nothing left to do but kick it over to you so you can tell us everything about the bts and making the mcu yeah i'm actually really excited i've been excited to get to this film because the screenwriter and composer aspect i actually don't have to talk about them too much in this episode because we are going to revisit those pairings multiple times the screenwriters for captain america the first avenger were christopher marcus and stephen mcfeely who went on to continue to write every single captain america film after this and are the writers of the two-part Avengers finale. So these guys have been working their way up through the MCU since 2011, and what I find so baffling about these writers is they don't really have a lot of credits to their name other than this. They were the writers of the first three Chronicles of Narnia films in 2005, 2008, and 2010, and that's what caught Disney's attention, along with the 2008 writer's strike giving them the opportunity to doggedly pursue writing Captain America. Uh, They rewrote a draft by a writer named David Self, who is himself known for a lot writing a lot of adaptations of things he did an adaptation of the haunting of hill house called the haunting he did the adaptation of road to perdition and he did the wolfman which is a remake of a 1941 film directed by the man who directed this film a lot of weird and interesting stuff there i i what i that was that's an incredible interconnection. These movies have so much interconnectivity. They're incestuous in, in a serendipitous way because these so often cross decades. I think the thing that this podcast is most drawing my attention to is how many of these people are frequent collaborators with each other and how many people bring other people into their later projects. It's really funny to see the way that people are connected by these different things. The director, as I mentioned, is a man named Joe Johnston, who got his start as an art director and effects artist early in his career. He worked with Lucasfilm on the original Star Wars trilogy and Raiders of the Lost Ark, for which he won an Academy Award, and all that work is what drew Disney to him as a director. He, fun fact, also designed the Iron Giant from Iron Giant. And that's really funny because I feel like I completely compared the Iron Monger to the Iron Giant like two million times. Yeah, I get that. And a lot of the designs you see in this film, too, are very steampunkish, very high-tech 1940s in a lot of fun ways. 
And I think that's one of the things that set this movie apart. Iron Man and Hulk, as well as Iron Man 2, had a very generic action film feel to them, except for the various parts that were set in other parts of the world. Thor had the most unique visual dynamics with Jotunheim and Asgard, but this was the first time that it didn't look super CG and had a unique personality to it. You know what? I would even... I'm going to kick it back to the director because I think that has a lot to do with him. Some of his other early work was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, The Page Master, and Jumanji. So we're talking about a director with a lot of experience in making things look realistic as best you can. What's really funny is you just described a director who was known for high fantasy, and I would have expected him to be on Thor because the director on Thor is famous for his period pieces. Yeah, that's really funny, actually. Kevo, tell me more about the BTS in this film. Well, the cinematographer is a man named Shelley Johnson, who is not related to Shelley Johnson from Twin Peaks, even though I love Mad Chen and Mick. Uh, we're going to have to uh, Mad Chen... Agree to disagree. No, I love Mad Chen and Mick. I didn't say I love Shelley Johnson. That's fair. I feel like I would want to like Mad Chinamic, but she constantly plays people that I can't support. She's a character that's deeply unlikable on Twin Peaks, deeply unlikable on Gilmore Girls, deeply unlikable on Gossip Girl. I find it very hard to like Mad Chinamic in most things she's in. Yeah, you don't watch it, but she's also deeply unlikable on Riverdale, but in a Julie Cooper from the OC kind of way, so that's entertaining. I just can't get on the Mad Chinamic wagon. That's okay. I love her enough for both of us. So yeah, Shelley Johnson is also a frequent collaborator with Joe Johnston. You know, figure that out. And he did cinematography for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, which, you know, that's all you need to know about him as a man, as far as I'm concerned. And the composer is the other quadrant that I had been referring to earlier in this segment that I am excited to discuss, the composer for this film being Alan Silvestri. If you have seen any Robert Zemeckis film since 1984, you are familiar with Alan Silvestri's work, and that includes Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, Contact, and the Back to the Future trilogy. It's interesting that Alan Silvestri was involved in the Back to the Future trilogy because one of the quotes that I saw when reading about behind-the-scenes stuff with Captain America is that producer Avi Arad cited the Back to the Future trilogy back in, like, 2006 as an influence on this film and how he saw Steve Rogers as a man out of time coming back today, looking at our world through the eyes of someone who thought the perfect world was small-town United States, which I don't know how I feel about that quote because that's not where Captain America is even from... It's also not what Captain America truly represents, and that's a really great segue. I think one of the things that happens with Captain America is too frequently he gets adopted by this idea of hyper-patriotism. There's a, a comic book editor, she's also a really incredible scholar, Jen Smith, and she wrote a really incredible piece about Captain America, and one of the things she says in it is that Captain America reflects the political embodiment of the nation and a, a sense of protecting the meek. He's an idea more than he's a person. It's a really brilliant work, and I think she's correct. Captain America is the idea of protecting people, so this idea that he would be this almost like blind idea of what America was 200 years ago, and it's I know not even 200 years ago, but he's definitely not Walt Disney's best friend from growing up in Missouri. Well, you say 200 years ago because you're trying to hyperbolize as much as these people who pin these things on Captain America that... He isn't necessarily. It drives me nuts when I see angry trolls on the internet whose profile picture is Captain America. And I'm like, 
do, do you really not understand the spirit of the character that you are parading out there? Without getting too deeply political, Captain America's A on his mask is never going to change to a MAGA for any reason, unless the character goes through some sort of horrifying transformation. This character has never been a character associated with conservative political ideas. He literally went over to Europe and punched a Nazi in the face. That is a statement that tells you everything you need to know about what Captain America would think of the current state of things. Not just a Nazi. The Nazi. Well, we also have a bad guy in this movie who seems to really want to punch Hitler in the face. The Red Skull winds up with some serious I-hate-my-daddy anti-Nazi feelings. He seems to want to bring down Hitler at one point for being limited in vision and scope. Plus not red, probably. Yeah, he's, he's pretty mad that uh, he doesn't fit the Aryan model anymore. Because he can't grow hair, so he can't have that groovy little Charlie Chaplin mustache. Oh, that's actually almost a bummer for him. I'm sure he gets laughed at at all of the weird Nazi meetings. Yeah, poor little pig nose. No better time than right now, since he just about starts the movie. Let's talk a little bit about Captain America, or, you know, a lot bit. That's what we're here for. So, I actually just feel that the opening of this movie is way too fucking long. I don't feel any sort of emotional or personal draw to the film because of how long this introduction took. It would have been just as effective if it was, like, half the length. It just made me mad. Yeah, and I didn't really love the ice opening. It really felt disjointed from what the narrative of Captain America is. I get that it bookends the beginning and the end of the film, so we are drawn back to the present, which we started in. But it felt more like an X-Files episode, which I can't fully explain, but it was just a feeling I got. I love ice, so I'm glad that's the one you went with. Oh, sure. I actually get confused at this point because I'm about to talk about Thor for like 10 minutes. Like all we're about to talk about is Thor. Yeah. So Thor had multiple beginnings, hard pass. And then this movie had multiple beginnings and we're five minutes in. We're barely at the Red Skull. I have feel, I just, I'm so, okay. What did he say? The Tesseract is the jewel of Odin's treasure room. What? Yeah, we watched this movie with our dad and that line definitely caused much consternation because we were like, wait, when, what? Since 2011, when has the Tesseract ever previously been in Odin's treasure room? To give a little bit of background, my dad raised me super duper into comics, and when I met Kevo and he took a liking to comics, my dad was really happy that the man that I married uh, was somebody who was going to share in my geekdom and nerdery with me. It was always important to my dad that I find someone who has so much in common with me, and Kevo fit that bill exactly. So my dad and Kevo have a great relationship, and one of the things is he will watch these movies with us and get into the nerd debate, but his memories of these comics tend to go back to the 1970s, so sometimes he pulls these things out and we have to cross-reference but this was not one of those things. There was no mention of the Tesseract in Thor, despite how much the casket of Ancient Winters looks an awful lot like a giant Tesseract. I can't remember if that's the exact name of the device, but it is something flowery and poetic like that. It, it's not just that it's a little bit Thorzy, it's that it gets real, real Thorzy, because the next thing you know, the Red Skull is like, Ah, so interesting. <laughs> For a guy who has no lips, he managed to sound like he's choking on his tongue a lot. Yes. So, it's like nine minutes in, and we finally get to Steve Rogers, and I just didn't realize that Thor was the main character of Captain America. Kevo, do you have anything more on this introduction? Because personally, I just felt like the introduction was the worst part of the film. I get that. I was less 
thrown by this starting over and over again than I was by Thor. I didn't love the first scene of this. The Hydra thing was fine. I don't like Red Skull as a villain, so I found that boring. And then when we cut to Steve, it all becomes pretty coherent. Something that I was thinking about at the start of this film, though, was the introduction of Hydra in this one as an ongoing threat that will continue through to film number nine. I hadn't realized how close those were together. Wow, I hadn't either until you said five to nine. That's like... That's the opposite of a Dolly Parton movie. Yeah, basically. It, it's still a lot of room to breathe and build Hydra as a threat, but I really forget frequently how long ago now, chronologically in the MCU, Hydra infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D. and that whole arc of Hydra as an ongoing villain ended. But here we are back at the advent of it. And... Nothing. I got nothing. I got I'm, nothing there. <laughs> I'm with you on that, actually. Like, I'm telling you, I thought, other than the fact that, like, Filch was running around being like, where's my cat? I didn't really think much of this introduction, and I feel like it's one of those situations where the villain is just evil. He just, he, he's just crazy. I have no reason. I'm not like, oh, man. Oh, no, Hugo Weaving. I'm like, oh, all right, Hugo Weaving. Yeah, Hydra is basically just super Nazis, and, and in a lot of ways, this was just, well, here we are, the super Nazis, you were waiting for us, and we showed up. That is one of the things that sets Captain America apart from the other characters that have been introduced in the Marvel Cinematic Universe so far. Even if you know Hulk, you couldn't tell me the Hulk's fucking villain. If you managed to know Iron Man, you probably couldn't have come up with Stain as the first bad guy. If you know Thor, you're not sitting there thinking, oh, it's going to be Loki controlling the Destroyer the entire time. None of those are going to come to you. But you know what? Everybody knows Captain America punches Nazis. And I was sitting here shaking my head the entire time he said that, having previously had no idea of any of these characters' villains, but I knew Captain America fights Red Skull, and not even just because of J.T. Salinger's kids' movie. Like, that's the iconography. There's Captain America, and there's this red guy. Like, this is... So I guess in a lot of ways, this is the first time that people who aren't very well-versed in the Marvel Cinematic Universe are being greeted by a villain they probably already know. That's pretty cool. And that theme continues with Avengers, because these people now know Loki and can recognize him as a bad guy. Mm, yes. And that brings me to my next point. We're about to get to a scene that 100% makes my heart sing, and it makes my, my, my whole world a flutter. One of the things that we discussed in the Iron Man 2 episode is Kevo and Mai's undying love for Walt Disney, and getting to see Howard Stark be so Walt Disney in Iron Man 2 was incredible. When we cut to Cap, he's still meek Steve, and he's getting his ass kicked, and his buddy Bucky comes in and saves him, and then they go to the Stark Expo! Yeah, and with Clara Oswald, too. I love that. And the Human Torch. So I mentioned the original Human Torch at the beginning of this episode because I remembered that there's a really cool moment. It's almost blinking, you miss it. It's a little bit easier to find than when the original Infinity Gauntlet is just sitting in Odin's throne room in the first Thor movie and ultimately is nothing. But there's a, a man in a test tube or an android in a test tube, something, and it's, it's the Human Torch. It's the iconography of the original Human Torch, which predates the Fantastic Four character, and it just makes my fanatic nerd heart sing. It's one of the things I keep saying I love so much about this franchise. They they really love putting in little moments like that and things in the background. You know, the moment with the floating car. We all know that 
60, 70 years from now, his son is going to absolutely perfect that technology and use it to be a hero, much like the man who becomes his great buddy, Captain America. But here we are seeing it in the 1940s, and it's kind of laughable, the fact that it's barely getting up off the ground and then it falls. And what's really crazy is the Marvel Cinematic Universe doesn't have this necessarily, but the Marvel Universe has a long-time relationship with flying cars. Everybody has a flying car. I swear, at one point, Daredevil drives a flying car. You know what? Who wouldn't want a flying car? And when it's the comic book medium where you can just easily draw a car floating off the ground, why would you not? I get it. I believe it was a Marvel goods and gear, or perhaps it was a a loot crate. I can't remember now, but there was a really cool Marvel vehicles index that I got in one of my bentos that uh, it actually just was fun. It was like looking at all these great designs over the last 50 years of ridiculous Marvel vehicles. And Howard Stark not being able to design a flying car fits right in with that. Yeah. So the movie takes a quick pivot where there's this moment and Bucky is like, hey, man, you should come with me and this girl. And Steve's all bummed out because Steve just tried to see himself as a soldier and he literally couldn't see himself in the mirror because he's just too short. So poor Bucky's like, oh, my buddy's too sad about being short. So I guess I'm going to go have this ship off threesome by myself. Yeah. There's really no other way to talk about it. There's this moment where basically Bucky is like, dude, I'm going to hand you my leftovers. Come on, man. Come get this. And Steve is kind of like, no, that doesn't feel like who I am. I do actually want to make a comment about the silly Steve voice I just used. Everything about Steve's body changes, but not his voice. I also actually specifically did make a note of that. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I don't think it's that his voice completely doesn't match his body, but it is specifically notable that his voice does not change at all. I think it's because they're trying to say the strength he has inside him is what makes him different. It's the conviction in his voice, even when he's this little guy. He still has that powerful conviction, and that's what Erskine can see in him. I am madly and passionately in love with Stanley Tucci, and I think he is incredible and amazing, and... um. Joey, Mike, Tucci Podcast. Um, you can call it like, um, when I think about you, I tooch myself, or anything you want to call it. But Stanley Tucci deserves all of our attention, and his performance as Dr. Erskine is only made sad by the fact that by being Dr. Erskine, he can't appear on other Marvel Cinematic properties. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you know, that, as we discussed in the first episode of this when we watched Iron Man, that is the fate of the elder mentor often in stories like this where they help build the hero and end up sacrificing themselves for that hero. What's notable about this film versus that one, though, is that I'm getting ahead of myself, but I also made the note of the fact that Erskine does continue to be referenced throughout this film all the way up almost until the end, whereas Yinsen was not mentioned again after Tony left that cave. No, he wasn't, and that was really disappointing. I enjoy so much of what they do with Erskine. In fact, there's a scene with Erskine that literally defines Cap for the entire franchise for me. Cap says, I don't like bullies. I don't care where they come from. In so many ways, this is ultimately the way he feels about Thanos. He does not care where Thanos is from. He has to fight him. He will not stand for a bully. And it's that kind of doggedness that Erskine sees in Cap and knows he will make the best super soldier. Yeah. Speaking of what people see in each other, 
I want to say, we cut to one of my favorite Captain America villains. I actually love Dr. Zola. I think Dr. Zola is so fucking ridiculous. And the first time we see him, they imply that he's going to become his robot body self by showing him in this big screen tube kind of thing. It's really great visual iconography. It really made me smile because... I love bad villains, like stupid villains. I like villains who are frequently defeated because they're dumb. They're very powerful, but they're very dumb. And I feel like Dr. Zola has all of these weird plans, like putting himself in an old tape deck. We'll get to that. But Zola is ridiculous. Really everything about the Red Skull when we cut back to him, not that the opening scene wasn't somewhat ridiculous, but when we get back to him again, when we pan across, what is it, like the Alps, I I don't remember what mountains it is, whatever European mountains, to his cliffside base with this giant sky window, and it's just, it's... I don't mean this in an insulting way when I say it's just so silly and over the top. It reminds me of those 1930s and 40s serials. That's where the villain would be hiding in this not-at-all-secret lair that is so obvious. It really made me smile because it really captured the essence of that era for me. I find that we have been saying a lot of this movie worked for us already. I mean, I've also looked ahead at our notes and I watched it with you. But I find that we keep saying a lot of the period elements work for us. And that holds up straight through the training montage. After Erskine says, yep, nope, this is the guy. It's Captain America. That's going to be this dude. Steve is sent off to boot camp where he gets his ass kicked. I mean, it's like the shit on Steve show. This is some amazingly sad montage. (laughs) But what really helps is the presence of Tommy Lee Jones, who I constantly forget was in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because the Captain America stuff by nature is so disconnected from the rest of the franchise. Peggy Carter continues to grow through this administration, but Tommy Lee Jones, Phillips, I believe, yeah, Phillips, was an old man at that time. He probably didn't make it through the 1960s. And this training montage really is important because unless we have Erskine, who immediately believes in Steve, Phillips, who takes a really long time to come around on Steve, and Peggy, who comes around on Steve in an appropriate amount of time, without this, we wouldn't be able to see his transformation into hero. One of the things is Cap is going to leave behind every element of his pre-superhero life multiple times. Tony still has his company. Thor still has Asgard to return to. Hulk, you know, I don't know. Hulk still has problems. But Cap does not go back to Brooklyn in this film. Cap does not go home to his company. Cap goes on a trajectory that takes him far, far from home. So he needs new characters introduced here to help support that he was always a good man and always ready to take on this mantle. There's two really excellent scenes that I love here. There's the flag scene and there's the grenade scene. Flag scene being 100% Mulan, as I wrote down in my notes as we watched this film. Again, not a complaint. It was it was really disarming. I hadn't expected that move from this film, honestly. I agree. With the flag moment, we see that Steve watches everybody else waste their brawn, and instead he simply finds a way to bring the flag to him instead of having to climb an impossible-to-climb pole. With the grenade, a fake grenade is thrown, Cap throws himself down on it before he has any superpowers while everyone else cowers in the corner. He screams for everyone to get away. He's literally willing to die for these people who have made his life a living hell since getting to boot camp. And my favorite part that I hadn't thought about until watching on this time that I wrote down was that it was... Phillips's test, not Erskine's test. Phillips 
had intended that to prove how weak Steve was, and instead was proven completely incorrect. It's so important that that's the way that it happened. The next major scene we get is Erskine trying to calm Steve's nerves the night before the procedure that's going to turn him into Captain America. This scene is important for a number of reasons, not the least of which is they give us what they pass off as Red Skull's origin. Oh, and you know what I hadn't considered earlier is the fact that Erskine knew Herr Schmidt and technically created the Red Skull, so of course he would have to come up through the rest of the film. Okay, that's pretty fair. But yeah, my favorite part of the Red Skull's origin story is there's a shot where they show multiple Herr Schmitts on the screen at the same time for no reason, and it amuses me because it makes me think of the Mr. Smiths from The Matrix. We go from a scene where we get his backstory to a scene with him just being boring, like, right away. (laughs) And it's the first time we see that he's red now, because we see somebody painting him, and there's all this red paint, and, like, I don't know. Was that supposed to be, like, a reveal, or was it supposed to seem like, oh, shit, he's the Red Skull? Yeah, I don't know. I found it a little bit frustrating. I guess it's because they didn't want him to go in and out of the mask the entire film. Once it's off, it's off. But I don't know who they thought they were surprising. We all, we know what the Red Skull is. We knew what was going to happen. I don't, I don't know if anyone is surprised by the reveal when it comes, but, you know, they were doing something. I feel like you can't discuss Captain America as a character or a film without discussing him and Peggy in the car on the way to the super soldier transformation with the whole I haven't found the right partner dancing bit. That bit is so great. It's so classic to the character. I'm really into it. It's a very definitive part of their dynamic and relationship, and it was really important to sew so much of that in before his transformation. She's smitten with the way that he defeats the flagpole challenge. She's disarmed by the way he throws himself on that grenade, and they have this lovely conversation here. It's really important that all these moments are pre-serum. I agree, because it's so easy to fall in love with the immensity of Chris Evans. It makes it almost too easy for her to love him so that this is not chris evans this is like shrunk down cgi monster and she falls in love with shrunk down cgi monster anyway Uh, is really great and then we get to the part where we make us a super soldier yeah uh i mentioned i think in the previous episode Uh, I appreciated the moment when we see Steve's eyes bug out. It's very reminiscent of the Hulk. I loved seeing all of the labeled Stark Industries tech around the room with a very vintage Stark Industries logo. Uh, I felt that the Crispin Glover-looking Hydra agent was telegraphed way too hard as being a villain. It was just way, way, way too obvious and Anyone watching would have known they didn't have to telegraph it so hard on top of that. I really, really agree with you. It was one of those things where they were trying to make it clear so that they didn't get accused of throwing something out of nowhere, or maybe they just wanted the fun atmosphere of the sequence. But ultimately, I felt kind of bored from it. This scene was Marvel's bread and butter for Captain America for about two years. Every Captain America image was either him in the costume or a still from this. Yes. And it's because this was the peak of what he looked like in this film. Ultimately, Chris Evans would go on to be in considerably better shape in subsequent Captain America movies. Mm. But he is unbelievable and just about inhuman after his transformation, which, by the way, the Steve moment, the, the, the transformation into his inner beauty comes at 3704. Yeah, it's important to keep track of these things when we see the actual transformation and first appearance of the heroes as we first know them. 
we ultimately have come to find, with the exception of Thor, which is a little bit more dis- difficult to discuss because he's always been Thor, that most of the movies have their turning point around 40 minutes. These are two-hour films. That's about the first act of it. A third of the film is dedicated to creating the hero. In this case, I believe that the first third of this film was dedicated to building the armor for the hero. The point of this film is Steve was the hero from the beginning. Mm, Yeah, I get that. So we go from this incredible moment of victory to this incredible moment of sadness as the saboteur that is nearly Crispin Glover goes after Erskine. My precious Stanley Tucci, don't you dare. Yeah, and you know what? I love Erskine, but I really have to make note. I didn't love the moment of Erskine's death. Uh, I found it really jarring. Erskine specifically notices this Hydra agent playing with his lighter. He does nothing to react to this man. And then there's the explosion and the way he gets shot. You know, his death is important, but I didn't really feel like it was telegraphed or directed exceptionally well. It's just sort of like, oh, this is this is the time when Erskine needs to die. I didn't love that. I love the rest of the scene as it continues, though. And I think the rest of the scene as it continues is so talked about and so well documented it's kind of hard to talk about it peggy goes off immediately after the crisp and look-alike cap is a moment behind her she takes an amazing shot she's such an amazing agent it's so amazing to see this strong powerful woman that the marvel universe deserves that the marvel universe is entitled to she takes that shot and stops the driver and then cap is off like a light because he has the strength he has the speed and watching chris evans face and hearing his delivery as he's coming to realize oh my god these are huge fucking muscles yes it's so funny because you can literally see him it's we all have that moment where we're like oh shit i guess i have been working out and i guess i am getting stronger oh my god you know that time where you go to squat and you don't even realize how many 45s you have on it but this is that in an instant when you do that sort of thing I'm just saying a lot of people don't have that same experience as you, but you are completely correct. Something I specifically took note of watching this scene this time is the ways in which Chris Evans still played his character as though he was small Steve. And it was really interesting. I paid special attention to him discovering, it did sound like, you know, body wars from Epcot a little bit, but it's him discovering his body for the first time. When he says sorry to Peggy when he knocks into her, he sounds so much like small Steve still, because he's still used to being this mousy, clumsy guy. He's not used to his body. Our dad pointed out he's barefoot, and we were like, yes, he's a super soldier now. He would be able to run through Brooklyn barefoot. He crashes into that window in the dress shop and immediately gets back up, and he's learning how his body can take these hits, and he's figuring out how he's this weapon and it's really cool to watch because it's not too on the nose but it's all there if you're paying attention it also brings us to one of the coolest things that cap is not just trying to stop this bad guy but he has this opportunity to save this little kid and the little kid is like go get him this little kid doesn't even know who cap is but his goodness shines through so powerfully that This kid can just tell that this guy is going to be a hero. And then Cap rips the top off a fucking sub. Yeah, and again, I think some people would be like, how does he even know he can do that? Because he just ran through a shop window and got up like he tripped slightly. It's it's within his power, and it's fascinating to see him realize how quickly he can use this power and try to use it. How does he know he can do it? Well, he just did. 
And that's kind of the magic of Captain America. There's a few really cool moments of iconography where he holds up the taxi door and it looks like a starred shield. That's a really nice touch. There's some really cool things in this scene. Ultimately, I don't feel there's a lot of plot. There's a lot of really cool moments that they immediately walk back. They don't take the moments away from Cap, but instead they demote him from possible super soldier to star-spangled man with a plan. Yeah, it's a very dramatic shift after the action sequence, and unfortunately I really feel like it slows down the film a lot. I love the song Star-Spangled Man, of course, because I love anything by Richard Sherman, but beyond the excitement of that musical sequence, once we dissolve back into Steve's disillusionment of his use as a super soldier, it really slows the plot down a lot until he gets dropped in the Nazi base and decides to liberate Bucky. Speaking of Nazis, I did skip the one line from Red Skull I actually enjoy. When Red Skull says, great power has always baffled primitive men, I just can't not laugh. And jumping to the next point, speaking of primitive, Cap draws himself as a monkey. Yeah, I liked that reference to Captain America being a cartoonist early on in his run. That was really cute. I don't think it was the best monkey, but, you know, it drove the metaphor home. It was cute. And speaking of references to early Cap, there is a moment that looks exactly like the cover of Captain America Comics number one in this sequence as well. So there's a lot of really interesting touches from this USO segment that connect to the actual canon of Captain America. This is one of those ways they could pay back fans who had always invested in the character without sacrificing anything from making a good movie. So then Cap leaps into action and decides to save his best friend Bucky. This scene had to happen at some point. We needed to see Bucky come back, otherwise all the Bucky stuff in the beginning was really bad something i found sorry something i found interesting that you informed me of is that a lot of the bucky stuff that we have seen in the marvel cinematic universe particularly once we get to winter soldier wasn't part of cap's mythology at first and it wasn't really introduced until the 2000s bucky has always been an integral part of cap's backstory so obviously he wouldn't have been omitted here but i really wonder how much they would have focused on bucky in this film if they hadn't known they were going to go ahead and be doing winter soldier and all of the stuff that he later became important to this captain america franchise for You know, I'm really glad you brought all of that up. Captain America, the Winter Soldier arc, started in January of 2005. And until then, there were just some things you never did in the Marvel Universe. You didn't bring back Uncle Ben and you didn't bring back Bucky in a very don't bring back Bruce's parents kind of way. The return of Bucky really changed things. It really tossed things on its head. The return of Bucky features a cosmic cube, the Red Skull. It features a lot of the ideas that tie into this film. I myself think Bucky is a character we are told is cooler than actually is, but that's just my feels. I'm not a big Bucky fan, although he's not that bad in this movie. And we can obviously, we will be discussing Bucky more in the film that is subtitled for him. So for now... Uh, his rescue scene obviously is a very important part of the film. It opens with Steve being delivered over the Nazi base by Peggy Carter and Howard Stark, and just some really uncomfortable flirting from Howard Stark in Peggy's direction. My least favorite part of this film is the petty jealousy moments between Steve and Peggy, and this is the first one that we really see. It feels so unnatural and inorganic. It's it's my biggest complaint about the entire film. It really slows it down and makes them both seem just... I don't want them together 
together when we see those moments. I agree. It makes them seem very small. I also love Howard Stark's inclusion in general. It makes it feel like when Tony teams up with Steve, there's a continuation of something. It makes it have a magical, timeless quality, and I really appreciate that. I love a lot of Howard Stark's inclusion, and especially Dominic Cooper's performance. And I just love Dominic Cooper. If you're a fan of Preacher, he's phenomenal as Jesse Custer. But back to this war... I really think the silliest and worst part of this sequence, unfortunately, is that Zola and the Skull are there. I wish they weren't. I wish this was a generic attack on a base, but they really wanted Cap to be able to face off against Skull, even though they don't really fight. They just kind of yell at each other from across a scaffolding. And he punches his face off. And then I guess at that point, Red Skull decides that thing is such a bitch to get back on. I'm just going to leave it. So the movie takes, like we said, weird alternating speed and slowdowns at this point where they get out and the coolest thing about the escape sequence, to be really honest, is when they walk back up to the base and Phillips and Carter see them not knowing if this was going to be successful. Peggy in her heart thinks she's about to be court-martialed and discharged and Phillips is like, I knew I was right about that guy all along. And then Steve walks up followed by everyone who was missing like his balls are so goddamn fucking huge he cannot possibly close his legs and everybody charges in like the cavalry and it completely purposely mirrors an earlier image when steve was making propaganda films of him leading a charge of soldiers and the comparison between the two shots is just really cool really beautiful it's a really great scene for cap it's one of the things that made me fall in love with him as a character i love when he frees the howling commandos and says i knocked out adolf hitler over 200 times he always manages to keep this wry sense of humor that I really appreciate in the character because a lot of people could play Captain America as exceptionally wooden, overly wholesome, humorless, and Chris Evans really puts a charming spin on the character that I appreciate. So here's where we get our Stamio for this episode in this film. Stanley plays an elder soldier who is supposed to be at Captain America's medal pinning ceremony, which he misses because he's busy doing his job as Captain Goddamn America and getting debriefed. And after the debriefing, we cut to Steve with the Howling Commandos at Tavern, throwing back beers with his pals. And you know, I love the Howling Commandos. Real, real do. So into Dum Dum Dugan, good gracious. I love these characters. This part of the movie for me is the part where the movie loses me, and I even love this movie. I don't love this sequence between Bucky, Steve, and Peggy. I think Bucky comes off looking sad and small, and I think Steve comes off looking like he has no clue what's going on. Yeah, it's deeply uncomfortable. I don't particularly love the scene either. Something I discovered in my research for this film, though, is the bartender who is serving the Howling Commandos and is asking, you know, where are they putting all these? That is actually the pre-serum body double for Steve Rogers. 
So it's really fun that they managed to find a way to give that guy a cameo as himself rather than just being a body with Chris Evans' head CGI'd on it. The next scene bugs me for a few different reasons. It's where we see Captain America finally get his final shield. There's just, there's so many things about this scene. Earlier in the film, Howard Stark had mentioned how the tech from Hydra was unlike anything he had ever seen. That really upset me because I'm like, he's supposed to be a genius. I understand it's good technology and he can even be complimentary of it, but we saw him making a car fly and we're supposed to know that he's a Stark. I don't love the implication that Nazis have better technology than him, but here we see him starting to work with Tesseract-built weapons, and now I understand him being a little bit more out of his depth. This is an energy source unlike anything on this planet. That really makes a lot more sense. But the things that really bug me about this scene are more a lot of the gendered shit, which is really weird. Natalie Dormer literally throws herself at Steve Rogers in the middle of their workplace, and then Peggy sees them making out, and she starts being catty about it to the point where, in a professional space, she shoots a soldier without any warning, preparation, or safety gear just because she's mad that she saw him kiss another woman. It's not attractive. It makes her seem very not good at her job. It makes her seem a very small, petty woman. God forbid that shield had a flaw in it. She just killed the world's super soldier. Yeah, for the film with the least hetero visibility, it's probably the most oppressive, which is disappointing. So we go from here into Steve leading Bucky and the Howling Commandos to raid a Hydra train to pick up weapons or something. As Nico mentioned, you know, a lot of it really starts to blur together at this point in the film. They're on a train in a mountainside. And this is, of course, where Bucky has his terrible fall. I noticed that he gets to hold Steve's shield for a second before he dies. That's cute, but, you know, it's it's there. We watched it. And I feel like the only reason this scene has to exist is because if Bucky didn't come home with Steve and he didn't have good memories with him, there would be no argument for, oh man, the Winter Soldier. It would have so much less emotional impact. But that means that this has to be where Zola is caught. And that's... I just feel like Zola should have been caught in the last sequence. I agree. But it was really funny. I en- While I enjoy the Phillips-Zola sequence, it doesn't do a whole lot for me. And it occurs to me that we have mentioned the cosmic cube—oh, I've done that twice. Tesseract, right? So so people know in the comics it's called a cosmic cube. Mm. It's not called a tesseract. So I keep realizing that we haven't mentioned the Tesseract much, and that's like the whole point of the movie— And we just keep not bringing it up. But at this point, Zola's going to do everybody a favor and bring it up for us. Yeah. I also realized while we were watching this scene that Erskine and Zola are the two actors who play the commentators in the Hunger Games film franchise. I can't remember what Zola's character's name is, but of course, uh, Caesar Flickerman. Yeah, Stanley Tucci. So it was really funny that these two people who helped the Red Skull and were counterpoints to each other in this film were also counterpoints to each other in a way in another film franchise. Starring Thor's younger brother. That isn't Loki. Yeah, starring Thor's younger brother. That isn't Loki. Good point. At this point, after losing Buck, uh, Steve gets super sad and he goes to another bar and we get another sad, silly bar scene that slows down the movie even further. 
I liked that it was Peggy consoling a fellow soldier and that it wasn't hyper-romanticized. It was just affectionate. I enjoyed that part of it, but I have to agree. It really does, you know, slow things down. But now we're getting into the final action, the place where it's not going to slow down until it's finally all over, the final onslaught against Red Skull. In that regard, though, this is another one of those Marvel movies where the ending is just punch, punch, kick, kick, punch, punch, kick, kick. Except for Cap versus the Skull. In so many ways, the Cap versus Skull fights in this movie over and over again are really boring for two super powerful guys. I don't feel like I'm watching a team up of Titans. I feel like I'm watching two guys narrowly miss each other for five minutes. Yeah, I don't disagree. I'm going to be honest. Anything about the fight between actual Steve and Red Skull, nothing really sticks out in my memory. I... For me, it's more a lot about Steve chasing Red Skull down, and I know he defeats him, but their actual physical confrontation, I can't say that anything has really stuck out in my mind no matter how many times I've seen this movie. And I think part of that is because so much of it is inevitable. So many of these Marvel movies end with the inevitable. Not that there aren't surprises, not that there aren't cool twists and turns, but so many of these Marvel movies end with what is clearly going to be the ending from the beginning. And it's funny that you use the word inevitable because I wrote that down and really this ending is inevitable. We know that Hydra didn't overtake the Third Reich and try to take over the world. We know that these bombs aren't going to get to New York because not only do we know our history, we know the history of the MCU so far and none of those things have been mentioned which would majorly change history. So it's still fun to watch Steve and the Commandos try and go after Hydra, but we do know the inevitable conclusion of this battle. And it doesn't help that Cap isn't the one to defeat the Red Skull. The Tesseract is. This will come up again at some point down the line in Infinity War. But Cap does not defeat the Red Skull. The Red Skull is felled by using the Tesseract. Ultimately, that is not the world's most fulfilling ending. And it's wild that we aren't going to get any sort of at all satisfying conclusion to what happened to Red Skull for another 15 films. 15 films and like seven years we don't find out what happened to this character. I always sort of assumed like he was taken up by the Asgardians or something. So to find him on the really boring planet in Avengers Infinity War, it was a nice surprise and a nice callback. I just assumed he died. Like, I just assumed he burned away. Like, that was it. I didn't think it was some greater thing. I just assumed, nope, little boy playing with a giant box he shouldn't be touching, and he died. Oh, I didn't know if it was him playing with a greater thing. I thought it was like him being jailed or something. But either way, we were both wrong in in different ways. It was a very strange choice, especially knowing they didn't get Hugo weaving back for that role. But we'll come back to that when we get to Infinity War. At this point, the movie goes for emotion, 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 emotion. Not always the same emotion, but an incredible onslaught of feels. Steve is the only one who can get this plane to not kill a whole bunch of people, so he has to crash the plane in the Arctic. It's the thing we knew was going to set up the film. Cap is long lost, and the Avengers find him. In the comics, here, he's found by S.H.I.E.L.D. at the start of the film. We knew this had to come around. He had to get lost in the ice. That's the point of this, and it's the point of the beginning. We get a little bit more of the romance and the dance story between Peggy and Steve, and it's heartbreaking. We wanted to see them together by this point. They had been through so much, and considering Steve just lost Bucky to falling, and he's falling, it's a 
pretty rough ending. Yeah, it, it's a very rough, dramatic, sharp ending. The way they juxtaposed it with people celebrating the defeat of the Third Reich and kids, you know, that one kid with the trash can lid, Captain America shield, and the idea that his legacy lived on. It's really beautiful. In my head, that kid's from Brooklyn. Oh, of course, of course. And then we get Cap waking up and running into Manhattan, and it, it's great that Nick Fury is there, but it feels like a huge miss that there's nothing else really tying it to the Avengers, especially because this movie didn't get a post credit scene. Yeah, from what I recall, the post credit scene that we saw in theaters was basically just a trailer for Avengers, a teaser trailer at that. Yeah, so... The movie ends on sort of a half-hearted note, but all in all, Captain America is the adventure of a superhero becoming so much more than he was. It's a very disorienting and jarring sequence, though. I appreciated that, even after all these rewatches, the way that he wakes up in the 1940s, it really throws you as the audience who saw at the beginning. That's the only reason I appreciate the opening, because we know that he stays in the ice until he is found by those people. So you're immediately disoriented by this 1940s picturesque room that he wakes up in with Kirsten Cohen's sister from the OC. I liked that. And then I liked the sequence of him running through New York barefoot again, even though it's the future. It's nice, but it's such a sudden, sharp, jarring ending. It literally requires the Avengers to feel like this story is complete. Well, that's another movie down. Yep. So until next time, when we team up with the team, the Avengers, I think we should call it here. Cap didn't have a tag for the next movie, so I don't think we're going to either. That sound good by you, Kevo? Sure. Until next time, Kevo, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. As always, you can find our awesome comic book, Riot Squad, over at KidRiotComics.com, where it's on its second season, along with its sister title, Capes and Boots. You can check out my awesome music project at Facebook.com slash ActionDuo. And don't forget to check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Until next time. Peace. <laughs>